everyone, and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Read the Script, and joining me is... Scotty Hurst. <laughs> Adam, I have a question. Do we have to arm wrestle Cam now before he comes on the show with these new strong mayor powers that he has? Uh, I, I haven't read the fine print of the legislation, but I, I can't imagine that's true because uh, there's there's no money in the Ontario budget for 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 weight building and uh, for muscle building or uh, you know bench pressing or uh, I mean pizza strength. Out. Yeah, yeah. pizza strength. <laughs> there's no pizza strength. Which would which would be like the ultimate strong mayor power? It's like you can use a strong mayor power after a feat of strength, but uh, I mean that that's one of those things that just doesn't make sense about the legislation, you know. Leap twenty three story condos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> single swoop of a pen. Anyway, another day, another another day, day another day. <laughs> Open sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at five p.m. As we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be the Guelph MPP and Green Party of Ontario leader, Mike Schreiner, who's going to talk to us about the end of the spring session at Queen's Park, trying to get the Ford government to make good decisions, and the stakes as we head into the second year of this provincial government term. That's going to be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including the Toronto mayor's race. There are, well, there were actually a number of endorsements today Mm. and uh, anti-endorsements as well. And uh, we're going to talk about that before the Monday supposedly coronation of Olivia Chow. But first, as we're recording this, uh, the sun is going down on the National Indigenous Persons Day. We... Wish we could say that no one out there is denying an important part of the history around the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada, but we can't. Uh, This is coming on the heels. And before I get into what is coming on the heels, if I just want to say trigger warning, obviously, because we're talking about bad things that went down at the residential schools, um, which include all manner of uh, violence and abuse. And uh, I also want to say, if you are a survivor of residential schools or if you are a victim of intergenerational trauma from uh, resulting from residential schools, there is a number you can call. It is staffed 24 hours a day if you are in crisis. That number is one 925 4419 That's one 925 4419 So if you feel like you need help, uh, that's a good place to reach out and get started. So now that you've been sufficiently advised, uh, there is this person named Kimberly Murray. She is she has the very Canadian title of Independent Special Interlocker about the search for unmarked graves. And she came back with a report with 12 common concerns raised by residential school residential school survivors last week, which includes the access and destruction of records, access and destruction of uh, residential school sites, uh, the the complexity of doing the ground searches, the challenges in responding to the public and members of the media in terms of disclosures. But the biggest takeaway of all was the increase in the violence of denialism. And this is something that a lot of people have been noting. 
an increase in number of people when you go online and talk about uh, missing children from residential schools, the search for uh, the remains of kids who are still unaccounted for, uh, unmarked graves uh, that have been discovered, or I should say uh, ground penetrating radar strongly indicating that there are unmarked graves at certain sites. Uh, people rising to the defense of the residential schools and saying, uh, you have been lied to, this is the big lie, so on and so forth. And uh, this is becoming a, a bigger and bigger problem as, as the, you know, the sun is setting on uh, what, what should be a day to uh, raise up our indigenous Inuit and Métis peoples. Yep, spreading far and wide. And the uh, in doing a bit of the... Yeah research for this story uh the mm -hmm. first article that came up for me mm -hmm. which i thought was unusual was dated may 31st by Lindsay shepherd remember her mm, free I've speech never ever read anything on true north but i read some of this one because lucky decided... <laughs> what's that lucky you've never read anything on true well, north. <laughs> i try not to but i i did it for the did it <laughs> taking one for the team on this one <laughs> <laughs> and it's this long screed, you know, attempting to debunk the remains found. It was actually soil disturbances, this and that. Now, I don't know the exact date of the people showing up at the Kamloops, uh, Kamloops Residential School site with shovels. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was within this slice of time it was mentioned. They didn't specify when it happened. Mm -hmm. This seems to be the type of thing that would drive that. They... they let's call them the, I don't know, the freedom gang for, they don't have a name as people have shown up with shovels. Like, Show us the bodies. We need to, mm -hmm. we need to, we don't believe you. Now there's that excellent article. I'm not sure if you saw it, Adam, in the tie about this and mm -hmm. that the whole thing that started about uh, soil disturbances and anomalies versus bodies was a tweet that was sent out in error by the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. The Canadian Museum of Human Rights sent out a tweet said specifically 215 children were discovered on Mark Graves, but in actual fact, and the the band never said any of that. It was they, you know, we found we found these anomalies. We need to look into it, and mm -hmm. there is a way to do that. This is procedural. There's a certain uh, decorum, let's say, around the mm -hmm. it's archaeology, but it's also forensics. Plus, being mm -hmm. respectful to the belief system, so. But is just fueled this whole denial, contrarian point of view that has um, surfaced to you know for all for all of those reasons the the colonial project the, you know how dare you how dare you address our history it's it it's not exactly the same but along the same lines of oh my god they've changed the passport we're not going to know anything about history mm. there is this drive this I've heard it called restorative nostalgia about the past in Canada and that our history is, is untouchable, right? You can't, it's this, it's supposed to no, no country specifically those that are built on the colonial style are mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. It's not, it's not possible to have there's there's dirt in the history. We know that John A. McDonald was a racist. That's a fact. We know that 4,000 children, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, that's a rough number because it's probably more died in the residential school system mm -hmm. in terms of people that are buried there. That hasn't been confirmed yet, and it's going to take a long, long time to do it. Mm -hmm. But there is just this gang of people that are affronted by any challenge to this 
what they consider to be this perfect origin story of Canada. And as we know, it is absolutely far from perfect. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of people who seem to be junk-piling this. David Frum, uh, who was a George W. Bush speechwriter, he's from Canada. His uh, sister is a former uh, Canadian senator. His mom used to write for the CBC or do reporting for the CBC. Um, He pops on Twitter the other day, and he's like, Mm, it's kind of weird that, you know, they didn't find any bodies. And he was speaking specifically about the Camsell Hospital site in Edmonton, the old TB ward. Um, they didn't find any bodies on the property. There was a search done there in 2021. Um, and he's like, this is like the denigration of Canadian dignity or something like that. Like, that, that's almost verbatim. It's not exactly what he said. But uh, first of all, you know, David Frum, expert in imaginary things like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, they didn't find any remains on the Camsill Hospital property. But there was this out of that came this entire project of trying to find where indigenous and Inuit children were buried there were a lot of kids who got tb in the northwest territories were brought to edmonton supposedly for treatment and died and that's not to say that they died from uh the treatment they got at the hospital um you know people used to die quite handily from from tuberculosis but you know they they didn't make this where they screwed up where they didn't show care where they didn't show dignity to indigenous people or inuit people was like returning the bodies of people who deceased to their home nations or home communities and uh this was an instance of that there was this whole project like well we have a list of indigenous people who were never their remains were never returned where did those remains go they're not on the property and there was this one case of um a child who was buried in a nearby cemetery. And there's been a couple of cases like this of who, who died of tuberculosis was brought from the Northwest territories to Edmonton died of tuberculosis and was just buried in a nearby cemetery and with no forethought to set. Maybe the family wanted this person, this child to be sent home to be buried with the rest of their community um, and, and the rest of their ancestors. So, uh, you know, David Frum can harumph from, you know, where he's living, in his own crapulence after years of, you know, aiding and abetting <laughs> the worst is worst foreign policy disaster in American history. Um, but I mean, to, to say that this is that we're disgracing Canadian history. It's like, no, dude, the disgrace happened. Reclaiming this, making it right. That, that doesn't undo the disgrace, but it's certainly addressing the disgrace. And of course, you know, David Frum hasn't lived in Canada in like probably three decades. So, you know, I'm not sure why he's floating into this. He's more American than he's more American than person now. But uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because the, the friends are all doing it, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Um, Jordan Peterson, as I mentioned, uh, Lindsay Shepard. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Conrad Black. Another Barbara beauty. And John yeah. Kay, that yeah. uh, dynamic duo. And uh, who? Oh, Lindbergh, the the senator, former senator Har- mm-hmm. uh, Harper appointee, who got in trouble for saying, "Well, you know, residential schools weren't that bad." Yeah, uh, you know, just shut up. You're not you're not an expert. You have no clue what you're talking about. But it's the the root is the same. Whether it's you know big money people like Conrad Black, what what does he have to? What do any of these people have to gain by doing this? And again, it's yeah. it's that whole it's the whole you're you're challenging. You're challenging Canada. They're, they're, 
you're, you're the whole the system that they love so much is in the history that they love is at risk and is well but where is it's not as you said is history is history well uh, this then, is sorry go ahead well i was gonna say this is what you're kind of getting at is is the privilege um if if they are privileged and i mean they are privileged they're people who enjoy you know uh certain status in canadian society um if if they are to understand that their status comes from a place of um grievous harm done to marginalized communities and you know it has um you know that that kind of that that puts upon them a certain degree of responsibility to address it and these people because you know for reasons don't want to feel responsible and and you know mm -hmm. i get that too you know i get that feeling you know sometimes on twitter you know something happens and you see a bunch of people go like oh white men are the worst and, it, and you, you have to kind of separate that intellectually it's like yeah there have been a lot of bad stuff done by middle-aged white guys like i am now um mm -hmm. and and you know I, I confess that I sometimes feel that it's like, well, I'm trying my best. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying everything I've done is great. I'm saying I, I don't have room to learn more, but you know, it's, um, I, I think there's a visceral component to this, that these people just like feel like they're being blamed for something. I don't think that blame is being assigned. I think what our indigenous communities are asking for is like, let's start trying to do better. Um, and, and honestly, like the least we could do is like put names to people in graves and make sure they get home to their families who probably to this day still wondering where they are. And I'll, I'll let you rip in a sec. But the other thing is talking about the violence of this, you may be saying, well, what, what does, what, what, what makes this violent? Like somebody talking smack online about, uh, residential schools. Um, let's talk about Jeremy Skibicki. Who's the guy who's accused of murdering four indigenous women in Winnipeg? They scrubbed his social media. What was on it? Well, the usual racist, anti-Semitic stuff, but also denying of residential schools. Yeah, and this is this is somebody that pretty much put four indigenous women and possibly more into the ground. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, that, I guess that's one extreme of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there's the—I don't know if you can even call it the casual stuff you see on Twitter, which is which is abhorrent as well. Mm -hmm. But it's you know this—the th roots of this obviously go way back, but directly out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? It's mm -hmm. like, how are we going to reconcile this? How does the nation, as as a whole, reconcile this? And I thought maybe if they could create some kind of line of communication with the people that showed up with the shovels when they are ready to uh, dig this, these areas up and say, okay, if you're, if you're that concerned about this, then you should come, mm -hmm. you should come by mm -hmm. and then you can, you can witness it for yourself. What's going on now. The confirmed deaths at the Kamloops school was 51. They know that's a certainty, mm -hmm. but with the destruction of records and all the things that have gone on, they don't know for sure. And they've said that. They don't know if this 215 number is all bodies. Could be could be anything. Odds mm -hmm. are really good that it's going to be. But also coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the and the discussions that they had, it was, you know, there was all sorts of, you know, schools used to have boilers, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. well, they just people have disappeared. People mm -hmm. disappeared. Mm-hmm. 
And for somebody to say like se- ex Senator Burak about, <laughs> oh no, they weren't they weren't that bad. You know, maybe closer to our day because when did the last the last one didn't close until not that long ago, right? Ninety six, yeah, yeah, ninety six within our memories anyway, right? It's like mm-hmm. okay, maybe in nineteen ninety six it wasn't so bad, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, eighteen ninety six different story. Okay, but. Just to try and and this is whitewashing. How appropriate! And it's definitely, definitely whitewashing the the bloody origins of the place, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it just it just persists. Like I said, that article I found by I hadn't heard anything from Lindsay Shepard in ages, but I guess you know wanted to get some hits or some likes or some whatever. And, yeah, somebody's uh, looking for some just, attention. Let's drop again. an article because people aren't talking about me. Yeah, some of that going on as well, right? But. For sure. Um, I mean, it, it. the point is, I mean, we're learning as we're going to. Um, and it, it, there's certainly a learning process for all of us who were not victims and whose ancestors may have been perpetrators. And just to say again, you know, it, the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line is 1-866-925-4419. So if anyone out there, um, you know, is, is struggling with any of this, uh, whether it was you yourself a victim of residential school abuse or someone you know or someone in your family, uh, reach out because you matter and people want to help you regardless of the the ninnies. Um, let's call them the ninnies. I feel that's sufficiently uh speaking of ninnies i kid uh the toronto mayor's race is coming to an end uh it is election day on monday In- fun fact fun fun guelph fact uh several members of the clerk's staff here in the city of guelph are going to be running a polling place in toronto oh yeah pulling out the fun? stops i guess they need yeah yeah it's uh difficult to get trained people yeah it's you know, like calling all cars situation but um we just had to make it about Guelph for a minute. Uh, the uh, <laughs> that's how we roll. <laughs> that's how we roll. The, the race, uh, it, it is still Olivia Chow with a fairly impressive thirty six percent lead in the poll. While she has thirty six percent, might as well be thirty six percent between her and the others. Uh, I think Mark Saunders and Anna Bilo are both trailing at about twelve percent each. So. Um, what happened on Wednesday? Well, John Tory came out in favor of Anna Bilo. Uh, Doug Ford uh, mentioned that he has a Mark Saunders sign on his front lawn, which I'm pretty sure is an endorsement from the man who said he wasn't going to endorse anyone. Um, whether that, whether or not that turns the tide, I don't know. Uh, something like 130,000 people have already cast a vote in the can in the election they are expecting lower uh voter turnout uh, expecting voter turnout to be on the low side even though there was some record breaking uh early voting uh mm. in the race but uh that does not necessarily translate into record breaking voting on election day um anyway mayor olivia chow let, let me let me throw this question at you scotty uh how many days do you think it'll take for uh the sun editorials to get the knives out once olivia chow is elected <laughs> oh, they'll be up all night they'll be up all night right now <laughs> you should have picked fury i don't i'm not i don't know if uh the son of endorsed fury i don't think so um fury seems like an, an ai the things i've seen like I, i'm not even sure if he's real um, <laughs> seriously you look at some of his social stuff not not just the ones that were created by ai that were the actual ai yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Just I there's he's got filters galore, something going on there. It's like this just, it's a, an extra layer of creepy to somebody who's already a creep, in my opinion. <laughs> uh yeah. So yeah, the in, in endorsement week for sure. And you know, Doug Ford, of course, goes to hilarious mode uh because he's like first of all he's like oh i'm staying out of it and then it comes out he has the saunders sign on his lawn he's like yeah i i put a sign on my lawn like anybody but then he goes back into if olivia child gets elected this will be an unmitigated disaster and i'm not mm-hmm. actually sure if he knows what unmitigated means i'm not sure if he's mm-hmm. fed that line or mm-hmm. he i'm not going to give him any credit for it anyway but uh but that's him staying out of it by saying yeah vote saunders so bs right right mm-hmm. out, out of the gate who else was Ch- yeah Chow? They've all had endorsements along the way a little bit. Chow NDP obviously bylaw liberals and assorted. I think they were neck and neck in union endorsements. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this before. Mark Sanders gets has the one QP local endorsement, which was also kind of hilarious. Uh, but for going back to Fury, uh, who's in the running, maybe who's endorsed his endorsements for like Conrad Black and Jordan Peterson. It's like oh come on guy. And uh, Josh Matlow, the other liberals and ex-counselors, and Sharon and Bram, of Sharon Lewis and Bram, which is a good one. Mm. But um, going local again, I saw that Cam Guthrie had endorsed Brad Bradford, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Sort of out of district a little bit. I'm not sure where that came from. I figure it to be accurate, but um, it's... That, that that was interesting to me. It was like, oh, he's got an endorsement. And it's it's uh, Cam Guthrie. So Cam, if I'm wrong, uh, feel free to, to correct that. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, just just talking about the scope of the whole thing. It's like this this is the sweeps week, right? It's like okay, we need to find out who's voting for. Oh, and the star endorsed Chow as well. Mm. So I think I like I said, I don't know who the son is endorsing. It's not Chow. Stop mm-hmm. Chow. So probably Saunders. Maybe question mark. I don't know. Anybody's guess. We need to stop the. We're going to be toast. It is interesting because I'm I'm still curious to why Olivia Chow wants to still wants to do this. Hmm. Um, she she because you know she ran in 2014 and you know she was a longtime Toronto City Councilor and she represented Toronto at you know, the House of Commons and you know that's all fair. But I you know I thought it was. Like that was kind of a wrap for her politically. I I I have no doubt that she wants to serve and thinks she can be of service. I'm just not sure, and I'm also not sure like where the where the momentum is. Like, how did she become the front runner? And she's kind of stayed there too. It's like there's been ups and downs, like up a couple points, down a couple points. I'm I, I just I what I've kind of been left with is this idea is that somebody, you know, they want kind of an outsider. I think, um, hmm. and that comes down to the question: like, is this a change election or not? And I think. You know, the 20 some odd points between Olivia Chow and her nearest competition, Anna Bilo and Mark Saunders, you know, that's kind of the standard status quo, right? That, that, you know, Mark Saunders worked with John Tory as, you know, when he was chief of police. Uh, So there's allyship there. And then um, Anna Bilo was deputy mayor for John Tory for a number of years. So there's allyship there. Um, I, I did find it incredibly weird that John Tory would put skin in the game and, and and endorse anyone i can't imagine that yeah. that that i mean and it's not nothing to do with john tory i i think i think one of the things that this has done is sort of shaken toronto out of some sort of like mass hypnosis like and again this isn't to to, to mischaracterize john tory as some sort of malevolent force i just think that um 
<laughs> I think there was so much shell shock left over from Rob Ford's tenure and then to have Doug Ford at Queens Park, I think, you know, just to have somebody who looked like Mayor Dad in the mayor's office just had to sort of like comforting. It's like, yeah, he'll he seems like okay. Uh, you know, it's he's not you know, he's not out there doing crazy stuff. And then, of course, he did. So I just think that, that there's this kind of like, there's been this kind of awakening. And as people sort of looking around, like, where can I find leadership now? Maybe there's something just like comforting about Olivia Chow because she's known, a, she's a known quantity. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that just, just concerns me is that, like, the, as I was, half jokingly indicated like the knives are going to be out for her right away because she's a she's a lefty she's going to raise property taxes by 30 percent you know i mean to, to say nothing of the fact that john tory you know <laughs> on his last day at work like left a billion dollar hole in the budget that so that someone is supposed to magically fill at some point this year so i you know i'm not sure uh, I'm not sure Olivia Chow can do worse than that, but uh, I mean, the, the sun will certainly make it look like she does. <laughs> no, and yeah, of course, and and the National Post and others. Uh, but be, being a by-election too, it could be a short tenure. It could be. Mm. It's it's unlikely that it would be unless Olivia Chow decided. I'm I'm already predicting the next election, like the second <laughs> second time around, right? But if you remember back in it was 2014, mm -hmm. it was Tory. Doug Ford in second mm -hmm. and Olivia Chow in third. And I think there's enough people with a long, long enough memories in, in Toronto. Plus she is, she's a Toronto face as well. And in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, I think this is a mini referendum on the provincial government mm -hmm. because of everything that has gone down with, you know, the messing with Ontario place, the special deal with Ontario place, mm -hmm. the moving of the science center, mm -hmm. the, um, special powers, the, the strong mayor powers, which is which has come out of the housing legislation, right? Mm -hmm. A strange place for it to emerge from, but it was so. Here, here's a a scenario. What if a lefty mayor uses their powers to mm -hmm. like energize the housing sector, but does it from a nonprofit and cooperative approach? That mm -hmm. would achieve the goal. There would be housing. Mm -hmm. And that would still need builders and whatever. Obviously, if it was a co-op, it wouldn't need landlords. But because the friends aren't pleased, is that going to anger Ford enough to intervene? Because you know, you know, he's going to stick his beacon somehow. He does it <laughs> all of the time. You know, we only have we have Patrick Brown as a prime example of well, how much can I mess with this guy? And yet, weirdly, when Ford was talking about the strong mayor powers, I guess we're deviating a little bit, but it's related. Mm. He's yeah. like, well, you know, Andrew Horvath, Del Duca, they've got the powers now, and they were they were, you know, in opposition when they were in Queen's Park. So he's trying to pass it off as if, oh, you know. But he's he's he seems slightly terrified that it's gonna be Olivia Chow who gets the powers. Mm -hmm. I think he also said, Well, I will I will work with whoever, but work with and try to derail are two different things. But right. I mean he's still convinced that his brother was the greatest mayor Toronto had. When in actual fact, he was probably the worst. Well, like, also there still a guy, there's a guy with no, all of his shenanigans aside, drunken or otherwise, <laughs> he had no policy. He had, yeah, other than low tax, you know, respect the taxpayer. Well, you said that today. Like, there. Strong yeah. power, strong mayoral powers would not have helped Rob Ford unless the people behind him would be able to orchestrate the solution that they wanted. And I think there's a lot of that going on. Mm hmm. Well, I, you know, the, he's Doug Ford still sell, selling the line that they saved the city a billion dollars with their um, 
their oversight, but which is nonsense. That's absolute is, yeah. garbage. Or, yeah, which right? didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. We we'll have to leave it there. Uh, maybe we'll talk about the winner next week. Um, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll we'll find out. Although it's probably going to be Olivia Chow. We'll see. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with Mike Schreiner. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. <laughs> songs from an album that's number eight on the current CFRU chart. The album is called Amatsu. The band is Tinarawan and the song is Kek Algaham. Please forgive the pronunciations as my Touareg isn't very good but great sounds coming out of northern Mali there. The Berber people of the Sahara got hold of some electric guitars and are uh, doing great things with them and have been for a long time they're on they're on the radar but i think they've been around for quite a while now i have nothing to add to that check them out all right i will um <laughs> that's why we do our music bits right? that's yeah that's why the division of labor is what it is all right um so, oh, who's our guest this week? Mike Schreiner. That's right. Uh, he is Guelph's MPP and our Green Party of Ontario leader. He uh, obviously just finished the spring session at Queen's Park. They wrapped last week um, this, with with the the season finale surprise of everyone getting strong mayor powers. <laughs> but uh, uh, we don't really get into that too much. Uh, we we are going to talk to Mike though about. Um, how you know the opposition is kind of coping with all these like fast and furious changes whether or not you know the opposition parties have any influence to like try and get other things going in terms of housing like maybe brownfield remediation for example and so we talk about that we talk about um trying to work collaboratively with the government and uh the upcoming by-election up the road at kitchener center and where is mike gonna canoe this summer you will hear the answer so uh, stand by for that. Let's hit play on our interview with Mike Schreiner sitting, starting right now. Okay, Mike Schreiner, thanks for joining us once again. Hey, Adam, it's always a pleasure to be on. So let's start here. Uh, it's been a, over a year since the election. Um, what do you know about Doug Ford and the Ford government now that you didn't know a year ago? Well, I'd say the Ford government has moved forward on a number of things that they absolutely did not campaign on and certainly did not have a mandate for. Mm -hmm. I mean, the premier I've documented almost 20 times, either the premier or his housing minister explicitly stated that they would not open the Greenbelt for development. I mean, even their own housing task force clearly stated that uh, we don't need to open the Greenbelt for development in order to address the housing affordability crisis. Matter of fact, they also said nothing about strong mayors mm -hmm. uh, powers, which is something the premier did not campaign on as well. The premier did not campaign on privatizing health care, uh, yet they're moving forward with that. And I think we're going to end up paying more for less care. The premier did not campaign on 
you know, throwing out the charter rights of the most, the lowest paid, most vulnerable education workers. And while the premier did backtrack on his unconstitutional move to do that, he certainly did not have a mandate for it. And so, so much of the past year has really been a government moving forward on legislation that they absolutely have no mandate for. And in some cases, uh, they're doing the exact opposite of what they explicitly promised. Mm -hmm. Um, The pace of it, too, you know, you just mentioned uh, the thing with education workers and, you know, just like looking out, looking over the events of the last since September. I completely spaced that there was like an education strike for like a week in, in November. And I'm just, what what I'm thinking is I'm thinking about this on two fronts. Number one, you know, we're all kind of dealing with this on a daily basis for all these issues, whether it's homelessness, whether it's um, healthcare, whether it's um, mental health and addictions, uh, school staffing, all of this stuff. Uh, have there been, Here's the question. Number one, has there been anything that you as an opposition MPP have been able to glom on in terms of like, you can help the government move along and make progress on these issues? And number two, just looking at the pace of this first year of the term, you know, what is it going to look like for the next three years? Like, is this is this a constant pace? Yeah, well, you know, I think as an opposition MPP, I'm always looking for that balance between holding government accountable and opposing the things that they're doing that I strongly disagree with. For example, opening up the Greenbelt for development or paving over farmland across the province uh, when it's absolutely unnecessary. And then I'm always looking for ways in which, you know, I can work with government to, to move positive things forward. And, you know, we were more than happy to have Minister Clark in Guelph uh, last fall for the groundbreaking of the permanent supporting housing project, uh, the Kindle project near um, Sheldale. And I was just at Sheldale uh, yesterday for an event. And oh my gosh, you know, that building is is being wrapped right now. And, you know, the completion of it is you can see it. And so that's <laughs> exciting. Uh, you know, I campaigned really hard and pushed the government on expanded funding for the University of Guelph's veterinary program and the partnership between uh, Guelph and Lakehead University um, to bring in a program to especially attract more large animal vets in in Northern Ontario. Uh, you know, so there are some positive things like that to work on that you do, you know, uh, for your constituents, because you know, it's going to benefit your community. And at the same time, you know, I'm going to push back against this government's efforts to privatize our healthcare system, because I know that's going to cost us more and lead to less care. I'm pushing back against the government's sprawl at all cost agenda because I know that's going to make the housing affordability crisis worse because it's so much more expensive to service sprawl. And so I'm just going to continue to stand up, hold government accountable, uh, push back against the negative things this, this government's doing, and look for ways that I can work with them to benefit Guelph. We've talked before about, you know, how do you move sort of the immovable object? And and what you're talking about is, you know, there there is stuff you can work on. There is stuff you can find common ground on. Um, you know, the Ontario Farmers Association had their concerns about the, the separating of parcels of land. They work with 
the government and you know they they come to some arrangement where you know that's not going to be part of any change in 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 sort of the the legislation but you know on the other hand you do have these big things you have strong mayor powers that were like bill 23 um you know things like you know moving ahead with this is in the news today moving ahead with the appeal of bill 124 and i i just i I guess I'm curious, where's the Delta in terms of, from your experience, in terms of like, what's the difference between the government you can work with and the government you can work with? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to make a clear point that when Mm -hmm. it comes to severancing farmland, which is a direct frontal attack on farming all across this province, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we've for sure won that issue yet. The, yeah. the government agreed to extend the comment deadline uh, until August. And a lot of the farm organizations, um, which came together in a really unprecedented way to push back against it, working with opposition parties like myself to push back against it, um, you know, we're cautiously optimistic we've got a victory there. But until <laughs> it's signed, sealed and delivered, you know, I'm not <laughs> going to take my eyes off that issue and we'll continue to put pressure on government on that issue. You know, I think what is, you know, I think I found appalling, frankly, is to have a government that essentially and let's go to Bill 124 has essentially underinvested in our healthcare system and in particular has disrespected frontline healthcare nurses mm. and other frontline healthcare workers, creating a health human resource crisis in our healthcare system, which led to a number of emergency department closures uh, last summer, uh, an overwhelming of our pediatric ICUs. We've now seen the f- full closure of the Midland Hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of fear that we're going to see additional emergency department closures this summer. I mean, certainly if you spend any time at Guelph General, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll just see, you know, uh, a tragic number of people being cared for in hallways um, by a premier who five years ago said we're going to get rid of hallway medicine. He's actually made it worse. And then for that government to, one, appeal an unconstitutional bill that is directly leading to that crisis, and then two, say, the solution is more privatization. When you've looked at other provinces like BC, Quebec, and Alberta, well, Alberta may change with Daniel Smith, but we'll say Quebec and and BC for sure are actually backtracking on the exact same privatization models they were pursuing a few years ago because they've realized that it costs more money and it Mm. actually delivers less care. And so, you know, it's just infuriating as an opposition member to, you know, talk to you know leaders in the healthcare sector whether it's from the administrative side to frontline workers to patients uh all saying that you know we need more investment in our publicly delivered healthcare system especially the people who deliver that care and to have the government go in the exact opposite direction is infuriating you look at the housing crisis i would argue that you know the number one issue people bring to my office is the housing affordability crisis. I was just at Immigrant Services uh, earlier today, uh, meeting with a number of Arab women, all of them talking about the struggle to find an affordable home mm. uh, in Guelph, whether to rent or or to buy. And I hear that 
over and over again from people of all ages, all demographics. Mm-hmm. And for the government to say that somehow the solution to that is more sprawl, which we've got numerous studies show that it costs two point times more to service sprawl than it does to actually do what I've proposed with Bill 44 and Bill 45 to have more gentle density infill, get rid of the red tape that's preventing multiplexes, four-story walk-up apartments, purpose-built rental along major transportation corridors, which, by the way, was recommended by the premier's own, you know, hand-picked housing affordability task force. So instead of doing things like that, that would actually make communities more affordable, make homes more affordable for people, be able to ramp up supply much faster within our existing urban boundaries where we already have servicing in place. The premier is going forward with this sprawl agenda that's going to help maybe six or seven families Mm. who are land speculators cash in and make billions. Meanwhile, the rest of us are going to pay the price for that. So I cannot help myself. I feel an obligation and a duty to speak out against that because I know those kinds of policies are going to hurt the people I represent here in Guelph. You know, we have big pieces of properties here in Guelph that are, as you say, they're they're kind of surrounded by development. They're ready to be built on, but, you know, they're toxic and they need to be remediated. And this is one of the things I kind of always strike on. You know, it, it would be possible for the provincial government to say, OK, we're going to give X amount of dollars to remediate all these brownfields. Um, that certainly seems easier than. I don't know, passing massive reorganizations of municipal governance. And like, does anyone at, at Queens Park ever talk about like those kind of little things that can be done? Or is it just all big action? Yeah, well, the MPP for Guelph talks about it. <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, and I'm constantly reminding government that believe it or not, Adam, we actually had a Brownfield remediation program in Ontario, just like you've described. Mm. The previous liberal government cut it. Uh, the current conservative government's never brought it back. So imagine if, you know, instead of doing an election gimmick, like, you know, the license sticker thing, which costs, you know, over $2 billion in the first year they implemented it and will be 1.2 to 1.5 billion every year after that. Imagine if some of that money could be spent on brownfield remediation. And so, you know, places like the Emico lands here in Guelph, which, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking about redeveloping for years now and mm-hmm. haven't been able to because, you know, it's not safe to build there. Imagine if there was a fund that we could tap into remediate that property and build some, you know, great gentle density on it. Um, there, There's an area and they're servicing all around it. Uh, and you know, it's also relatively close to most major services in Guelph. Um, you know, it just makes so much sense. And so the fact that the government hasn't moved on things like that, that would actually build more affordable connected communities, build more housing that people can actually afford in the communities they want to live in close to their family, close to where they work. Um, the premier is pushing this sprawl agenda, which is going to make life less affordable for people because it's going to force them into longer, more expensive commutes, Mm -hmm. less affordable for municipalities because it costs a fortune to build all that new servicing infrastructure, like, you know, stormwater, wastewater, sewer lines, um, roads, uh, transit, uh, power lines. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, And, and it's, you know, financially it doesn't work 
um, for our economy because it takes so much longer to get that housing constructed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I guess I'm just going to keep pushing forward with like sensible, affordable solutions that build stronger communities uh, that are fiscally responsible and actually deliver the solutions that people are desperate for, especially when it comes to housing. The other thing, and I'm not sure if this is a, a uniquely Guelph problem, although I doubt that it is, you know, we have several thousand units that have been approved of that uh, have gone through this, the zoning amendment process. They've gotten the council approval. They're, they're ready to go. Um, my feeling is that one of the barriers to this and that has been bared out in some discussions I've had that, you know, we have a lack of contractors and workers. So I guess, is there any discussion around the halls of Queens Park about, you know, we can approve, you know, our goal in Guelph is 18,000 units. We could approve 18,000 units, but getting those 18,000 units built is, is, is another subject. And I'm, I'm curious if there's an appreciation amongst the, the government um, at, at, in, in Toronto, whether or not that they know that's a problem and, and whether or not they have an idea about how to get around that problem. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think the government is definitely aware of that problem because I've had that conversation with government members. And, you know, we have a labor shortage in almost all sectors, but especially in construction and trades. And and also, frankly, we have a labor shortage in our planning departments. So mm. even if you have those approvals in place, you still have to get like site plan approval and a whole host of things like that that happen at the municipal staff level. And if planning departments are, you know, understaffed, it's going to slow down those like final final site plan approvals. Uh, and then, you know, we, we definitely have a shortage of people in construction and trades. And, you know, that's not going to be an easy challenge to solve uh, because, you know, one of the ways in which we can solve it is to encourage more young people to go into the trades. The government has started moving on some programs to do that. But then, you know, I'm reminded by high schools, for example, that, um, you know, in some cases here in Guelph, you have those classes completely full because there's not enough classroom space for them. Right. Uh, and, and then, and then the other issue is just around the immigration file, which we're in a bit of a catch 22 right now, because we definitely need more immigrants, especially those in, in the, in the trades who can be, a, who can help provide the labor force needed to build those homes. But all those folks need housing as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a bit of a, a, a catch 22. That's not going to be, you know, an easy challenge to overcome, but, but I'm, I still think that if we have the right policy framework in place, we can speed up with our existing labor force. Um, the number of homes being built um, but the most affordable way to do that uh, at every level is doing it within existing urban boundaries, not uh, Doug Ford's very expensive sprawl agenda. Mm-hmm. Can you just take a minute and and sort of explain to the listeners about because I, I think that there's image. It's like here's here's a section of you know let's say the green belt nothing's been ever been built on just a matter of clearing those i hate to phrase it like this but clearing those trees <laughs> and building some stuff um in terms of just like the optics of that 
why are people wrong to assume that's easier than say remediating 200 Beverly and then putting a development there instead? Well, so first of all, there's been many studies showing that it costs 2.5 times more money for mm -hmm. a municipality to service the sprawl development. Ottawa did a study that showed that a home built through sprawl costs existing taxpayers an extra $600 per person um, each and every year. Whereas a home built with an existing area like on Bever like 200 Beverly, um, it actually is a net gain of $400 a year per person per taxpayer mm -hmm. for a $1,000 difference. Mm -hmm. So if you want to think about, you know, how do we make our property taxes go further? Well, you build within your existing urban boundaries, not because of sprawl. So why is the sprawl so much more expensive and challenging? Well, I mean, you've got to run hydro lines. You got to run sewer lines. You got to wa run water lines. You got to build new roads and streets. You have to think about like how that fits into your transit. Um, are you going to have to build additional fire and police service, um, emergency service um, to be able to service that far out? I mean, the list goes on and on. And so it's not a matter of just you know taking a bulldozer and <laughs> clearing some topsoil and start building homes. Like you got to service that with the things that, you know, most of us take for granted, turn the faucet on, the water's going, you flush the toilet and go somewhere, you you know, flip a switch, the lights come on, like all of that takes infrastructure and it costs money to build that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some fun stuff before we run out of time. Uh, you doing any canoeing this summer? I am. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone knows I take my daughter on a <laughs> canoe trip every summer. And uh, this year we're looking at the French river. I've always wanted to do the French river. Haven't done it. Of course, I'll do, be doing some, you know, warming up on the Speed River uh, here in my backyard, and uh, and we'll probably, you know, do a bit of kayaking at Guelph Lake and and a few other locations. But our our big trip this year is French River. Nice. Um, and you're probably also going to be doing some campaigning this summer, right? There's a potential by election. Well, there is going to be a by election. It might be for a, a while yet, but um, you know, there's a candidate ready to go. She's been on this show, Ashlyn. Um, is is that uh, going to be a priority for you in terms of just, you know, maybe adding to the green compliment in Queen's Park? <laughs> well, let's just say I've been spending a lot of days uh, since Queen's Park rose uh, being the Guelph MPP, you know, from eight in the morning till maybe six in the evening. And then it's a quick <laughs> drive over to Kitchener to knock on doors for a couple hours. And, uh, you know, we're we're like the we're very excited. Ashlyn Clancy is a fantastic candidate. Uh uh, city councilor, a longtime uh, school social worker, uh, very passionate ab about addressing the housing affordability crisis because, you know, a lot of the things we're dealing with here in Guelph, she's dealing with in Kitchener. Mm -hmm. um, she's definitely one of those counselors that's very good about, you know, getting to yes when it comes to approvals, especially for affordable homes. Uh, but she's also really strong on climate action and, you know, I mean, you know, we've got, you know, not the best air quality again today, not quite as mm -hmm. bad as it was a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, the the climate crisis is here. Uh, we're feeling the negative health effects of it. And, you know, we have a provincial government that's going to make things worse from an air pollution and a climate pollution perspective by ramping up gas plants. And she'll be a very strong voice uh, 
for climate action and opposing uh, additional fossil fuel use. And then the other big one that, you know, was getting talked about a lot during the pandemic, but I think we need to continue pushing on is addressing the mental health crisis. And as a school social worker, um, you know, she has the lived experience of what it's going to take to especially address youth mental health. And, you know, we have 28,000 young people on a wait list. It's two and a half years long. And I think Ashlyn Clancy in Kitchener Center is going to be an incredibly strong voice on some of the biggest issues we're facing. Not to mention, I think she'll just be a great MPP for her constituents in Kitchener Center. So I'm going to be working hard to help her get elected. And, you know, there's also likely going to be there's also going to be by-elections in Scarborough Guildwood and Canada Carleton. So, you know, I think a lot of uh, MPPs and party folks will be busy over the summer. <laughs> I think so too. I hate to say to to just make this quick, but you you did touch on something, you know, with the wildfires, with the haze and the sky. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you were, could walk around downtown Guelph and smell the smoke, like it smelled like there was burning, like the next street over. The climate crisis. I mean, that that's kind of like we can watch something on the news, we can watch a forest fire on the news, but to actually smell a forest fire hundreds of miles away. It didn't seem like that had an effect on the government at all. It seemed it seemed like they're still they're still seeing the problem as as kind of like not in their backyard to borrow a phrase. And I'm just curious, you know, from someone who's been trying to raise that alarm, um, I mean, <laughs> any kind of disappointment at all in what's happened in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> no, I, I'm just appalled that the premier can't even make the connection between the intensity and the severity of the forest fires and the climate crisis. I mean, how are we going to solve the problem if the premier doesn't even admit that there is a problem? So it, it's it's appalling, frankly, especially when the economic opportunities in addressing climate, you would think would get this premier excited. Mm. $1.1 trillion invested in the clean energy transition last year alone Bloomberg is predicting it'll be about 1.7 trillion this year alone. Over half, about half of that, 500 billion going into renewable energy, primarily solar, but also wind, mm -hmm. because they're the cheapest sources of electricity generation. We have a provincial government actively hostile to that. Imagine if we had a government that was pushing the lowest sor cost sources of electricity generation that could also attract business investment, particularly taking advantage of, of Ontario's manufacturing might, um, pairing that with you know what we're doing around electric vehicles. It's a huge economic opportunity to actually take action to to lower climate pollution uh, and air pollution, and you know to, to have a premier not be able to understand that when like literally when he was saying that you could barely breathe the air outside of Queens park, you know, it's just, it's, it's appalling, frankly. Well, we'll have to leave it at appalling for this time. Uh, Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for all your time today. I know. And let's leave it on a positive <laughs> note. The groundbreaking <laughs> of the Guelph library has just happened. And, you know, there's some good things happening here in Guelph. So let's, let's have a positive note as we move forward. All right. That sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Okay. okay. So that was, once again, Guelph MPP and Green Party of Ontario leader Mike Schreiner. And uh, hey, it's summer vacation. So um, I A guess. Reminder to inspect yeah. the hull of the canoe. That's right. 
I was going to say, you know, Doug Ford kind of takes the summer off, so you can, anyone who's concerned about what's coming next can probably relax for a couple of weeks, although he was talking about cabinet shuffle, or somebody asked him about cabinet shuffle, so maybe. They get three months, don't they? End of Mm. September? Yeah, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they come back till after the um, Olivia Chow's election. (laughs) (laughs) They may come back after Olivia Chow's election. We'll hear about it, yeah. Yeah, don't threaten. They reconvene. Uh, although there's been a problem. <laughs> All of a sudden, there's weak mayor powers, if you know what I mean. Anyway, <laughs> that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You can listen to the show again by downloading it from our website every Monday through the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're joining us at our regular time on the FM, please stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. And that is one of the many great shows that you hear on CFRU, 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. As for this show, it will be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then. (laughs) 